All right. Well, good to see you guys. Um, today, we're going to be shifting gears a little bit to talk more about uh, God's attributes. What is God like? Before we do that, I've drawn this on the board, which was the thing that both Jeff and I had tried to draw the last two weeks and have failed. This is not a picture of the Trinity. You can't draw a picture of the Trinity. The Trinity is infinite, and you cannot comprehend it. And, uh, but it's a helpful chart that just summarizes what we have been talking about when it comes to the Trinity. That the Bible teaches that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, but the Bible also teaches that the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Spirit. That you've got one God who's three distinct persons, each person being fully and truly God. So I just put that up there just so you didn't think we were idiots, because we kept trying to draw this, and it ended up just being a bunch of words all over the place, which was more confusing than the Trinity itself. So that's that image for you today. That's not what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to be talking about God's attributes. In fact, today and for the next three Sundays, we're going to be talking about the attributes of God. What is God like? Now, there are a lot of different ways to break these up. For these first two Sundays, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about God's otherness, and then the two Sundays after that, we're going to talk about ways that uh, we can understand God that are more like us, okay? Typically, when we, in theology, we call these things incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. Jeff's going to talk more about that next week. What does the word communicable mean? What is a communicable disease? Yes, it's something you can catch, like becoming a zombie or something like this. It's communicable. Incommunicable is something that you can't catch, right? And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about some of these things that, uh, where God is much, much, much less like us, that God is wholly other. So here's my goal today. When we talk about God, we talk about a God who is both transcendent and imminent. Anybody know what those two words mean? What's transcendence? different, his otherness, his far awayness, what makes him uniquely God, these kind of things. And when we talk about imminence, what does that mean? His nearness. That's one of the things that's unique about the incarnation, is in the incarnation, you see the infinite becoming finite. You see the almighty creator God becoming a man. You see God who does not get tired becoming a man who does get tired. You see God's transcendence and his imminence. Christianity is not just an abstract, God is not an abstract force. He's not just, it's not pantheism. It's not that everything is God. God is not, that's not the idea in Christianity, but neither is it the idea that you get kind of in Greek mythology where the gods are kind of just like powerful people. They get, they get frustrated and they become vindictive and they trick each other and they seduce each other and these kind of things. Neither of those are a biblical portrait of God, that God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. So today, we're going to be talking about some of the features, not all of them. Jeff will talk about some more next week. And by the way, you cannot classify all of God's attributes. So we're just going, to, just going to do the best that we can. Excuse me. And so today, what my goal is, before we talk about ways that we are similar to God, My goal is today to get you to see a much bigger picture of God. My hope is that this lesson will not just be abstract philosophy. My hope is that you will worship because you will see that God is so much bigger and so much better and very different from us. So let me make a strong claim. I think that most of our problems when it comes to thinking about God come from us thinking of God as if he's just some sort of big human. All right? I think most of our problems come from that. The reason that we doubt that God really loves us is because we think of him as just like some sort of big man. Now, obviously, the second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate, so I'm not talking about that, but with the Father and the Spirit, we have a tendency to think of God as though he's just like a, one of us, and he's just a lot bigger. 
He's like a, just a really big kind of grandpa in the sky kind of idea. And when we do that, it affects our worship. It affects our theology. So the reason we have a tendency to feel like God doesn't really love us or we doubt his love is because we start defining love the way humans love. Our, the way humans love, it's conditional. I love my wife, but if she cheats on me every day, my love starts to wane and it starts to change. And so what happens is we doubt God's love for us because we're thinking of him as a big human. Or if we really doubt that God will save us and that he will keep and persevere us in our salvation, that comes from thinking of God as just like a big man. We know that people let us down and humans let us down, so maybe God's like that and maybe he'll let us down too. I think so much of our problems in Christianity comes from not realizing that God is other, that he is different. He is not a man. He is not like him. He is other. He says that there's no gods besides him and there's nothing like him. So my job today is to get you to see God's otherness so that it might encourage you, so that you might realize if he's, let me, let me say it this way, the difference between us and God is not one of quantity, it is of quality. It's not as though if we're talking about love, my love is on a scale of one to a hundred, my love is like a four and God's is like a hundred. I'm saying we're not even on the same scales. God is an other type of being, okay? And so I want to talk about his transcendence. We'll talk about that for two weeks, and then we will talk about his eminence. We will talk about uh, his closeness to us, okay? Now, when it comes to talking about God, let me give you some fancy, fancy terms as we start talking about who God is. We started off by talking about God existing, which is super important, because if that's not true, what are we doing here other than not sleeping in on Sunday? Then we talked about the fact that God is a trinity. That's one of the unique things in Christianity. There's only one God, but somehow this one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Now that we talk about who this God is, I want you to realize anytime we talk about God, what we're doing with our language, okay? There's three ways to use language. And then... Sorry, I'm, I'm still a little tired today, but this time it's not because my daughter, she slept great. I stayed up to watch the Mayweather-McGregor fight, so that's why. Okay, now. Okay, three ways that, that we use language. Let's talk about this as relates to God, because we are reading in the Bible, we are reading God's word in the way that Calvin would say a mother lisps to her children. God has to use human language to communicate to us, because that's the language that we know. You go, to try, you go and try to explain yourself to a cockroach. That's going to be very difficult. The gap between us and God is more than that, okay? And so you have to realize that God is using human language. What he says in the Bible, he does say truly, absolutely. But there is also a sense in which we can't fully know things about God. We truly know things about him, but not fully. So let's talk about ways we can use language. The first is what is called univocally, all right? So it's called univocity, univocally, univocal, whatever it might be. Here's what that means. It means that when you're saying something about someone, you're meaning the exact same thing. So here's what I mean by that. If I say, Zach Lee went for a run, and Jeff Ashley went for a run, do I mean the same thing by the word run? Yes, I mean, we put our legs one in front of the other, and we moved quickly, something like that. I'm using the word run in one case, univocally of the word run in the other place. Okay, you with me on that? What is an equivocation? What is, it, what is equivocal language? anybody know what an equivocation is? This, is? this is the reason you fight with your spouse, by the way. You're meaning one thing and they're meaning something else, okay? Equivocal language or an equivocation is where you're using the same word, but you're using it in two different senses, okay? 
So univocal language, you're using the same word and you mean the same thing. Equivocal language, you're using the same word but you're meaning something different. So let me give you this example. The example I gave here was I go for a run and Jeff goes for a run and we mean the same thing by the words run. Now let me give you another example. Let's say I go for a run and my nose runs. Do those mean the same thing even though I'm using the same word? Yes or no? No, that's where you get the whole prank call joke. Is your refrigerator running? Well, you better go catch it, right? Because you're meaning something different by the word run. That's an equivocation, okay? The last one is analogical language, or an analogy is what that means, all right? Analogous language. Let me give you an example of that. If I point to my son, Judah, and I say, there is my son, and then I point to a picture of him on my phone, and I'm talking to a stranger, and I say, there is my son. I don't mean the exact same thing, right? It's not as though my wife gave birth to a two-dimensional object that fits on my phone. But there's something similar about those, right? That you can look at a picture of my son and you can look at my son and there's something that links them together, though I don't mean the exact same thing on my phone as I do for my son. Everybody with me on that? Okay. When we talk about God, we are using analogical language. We are using analogies. When I say that God is loving, I don't mean the exact same thing that I think of loving, my limited human form of loving, okay? So when we speak about God, we don't use univocity like that. We don't use univocal language. When I speak about God, I definitely don't mean it's opposite. I don't mean equivocation. I don't mean to say that, uh, you know, God is really nice, and by nice, I mean Doritos. I don't mean something like that, okay? So we don't use equivocal language like that. We use analogous language, okay? So when the Bible talks about God as covering us with his wings, that doesn't mean we're to think of God as like a big bird, The idea is, the analogy is, in the same way that a hen gathers her chicks and is caring and loving, so also God is caring and loving. Everybody with me on this? This causes a lot of problems in theology. We have to realize, when we're talking about a being who is wholly other than us, we're using analogical language. We're using analogies. Our language is not perfect. Also, it's not the opposite of what we mean. We're using analogical language. Everybody with me so far? Let me pause right there real quick, because this is kind of a weird philosophical concept, but you'll need this for later on. Everybody with me? Okay, if you're not with me, don't raise your hand because I don't want you to feel ashamed. Just email me later and we'll talk more. Okay, let's now, with that in mind, talk about who this God is we serve. Let me give you a great definition of God from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is just a, a helpful, reformed summary of our faith. I put it on your handout. There is but one only living and true Trinitarian God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgment, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's a pretty good definition of God. The idea here is that that, that God is higher even than our language can go. We strain our language to try to talk about an infinite being. That's why it'll just do the best it can. Most holy, most wise, whatever good thing it is, to the infinite degree. That's what we're trying to say when we're talking about God. So today, we're going to be talking about four different attributes of God, okay? Four different attributes of God. Jeff's going to talk about some more. There are more than this. We just have to pick a point, all right? It's like if you're going to talk about infinity, you have to throw out some numbers, but we can't talk about all of them, okay? And so we're going to talk about some of these today. Some of these will be a little bit philosophical. Aseity and impassibility will be very philosophical. The other two, simplicity and immutability, I think will be a little easier to comprehend. But here we go. Let's do all of these. 
Let's talk about something that makes God very different from us, and it is what is called his aseity, all right? His aseity. Let me give you a definition. God is self-sufficient in his existence and is not dependent on anything outside of himself for anything, okay? In Latin, ah, that little prefix means from, and se means self. So literally, God's aseity is that he is from himself. That doesn't mean that God created himself, okay? It means that he doesn't need anything, that he's self-existent. I remember being a little kid, and I was like, Mommy, where did everything come from? And she said, God made it. And then I said, where did God come from? What's the correct biblical answer to that, by the way? Yes, he is. I am. He's always been. He didn't come from anywhere. He just has always been. My mom's answer to that was God created himself. God created himself. And if you ever wonder why I'm weird and insecure, it's because I had some weird theology growing up, okay? My mother's very sweet, by the way, but uh, I heard some little, little isms like that uh, along the way growing up. That's not what we mean. Let me give you an example of this. This one's a little bit abstract, but it's really, really, really important. Of everything that exists, there's two kinds of things that exist. <clears throat> there are things that are contingent, meaning they didn't have to exist. Could God have created the world exactly like it is with one less chair in this room? Yes or no? Yes. Could God have created the world and never created Zach Lee? Of course. Could God have created the world and never created cats? There's my plug for a cat joke. We always make cat jokes. Uh, could God have made a world where we didn't have tacos? Yes. There are all these kind of things in the world that God has made that are contingent. They didn't have to be that way. They don't have to exist. They happen to exist because God decided to create them. Everybody with me on this? Everybody with me on this? Everybody good? Okay. So there are contingent things, and then there are things that necessarily exist, that being God. What I'm saying with aseity is simply this. Sometimes it's called God's self-existence. Sometimes it's called his independence. Here's all I'm trying to say on this doctrine. It's simply this. God doesn't just happen to exist. He necessarily exists, okay? His existence is not like the existence of anything else. God didn't have to create the universe at all, all right? The fact, everything that he's created didn't have to exist. God has to exist, though, all right? He has to exist. Here's why I think this is really important. If you think back to the ontological argument that we did in uh, the existence of God, we have a tendency to think of spiritual things or think of God as kind of less real than things down here we can touch, taste, and see. It's the other way around. God is the most real being in the universe, okay? The most real being in the universe. Everything that exists comes from God. God, though, has just always been. God has just always been, okay? Let me say it another way. Well, again, we'll have time for questions at the end. For everything that is, you can ask these two questions. What is it and is it, okay? Let me give you an example. What is a chair? It's a chair. Does this chair exist, yes or no? You guys nailed it, see? Just philosopher theologians. You see how easy it is? This is a chair. That's what it is. And it is. It happens to exist. Now, let me give you another one. Let's think about, again, a unicorn. Again, super shiny, super sparkly, full of magic. You can even throw wings on yours if you want. It's like a Pegasus corn, whatever it is, okay? What is a unicorn? Well, it's a unicorn. Does it exist, though? No, it does not, okay? So with everything that is, you can say what it is, and you can ask the question, is it? When it comes to God, those are the same thing, okay? When it comes to God, those are the same thing. God is not merely a loving being. He's the definition of love. God is not merely a good being. He's the definition of good. God is not merely some sort of just being that happens to exist. He is being, capital B, existence. That's the idea. Let me give you an example real quick on this. This is important. 
Sorry, I know the awkward space why I'm erasing things on the board is not helpful. Okay, for the recording and for you guys, it makes it awkward. So if I say that God is good, what do I mean by that? Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean here's God, and I now put him under this other category of goodness. So there's something out there outside of God that's called goodness, and I just put God under there. It doesn't work that way. Rather, what is good is what conforms to God's nature. God is that definition of goodness, and whatever goes against that is what we call evil. So it's not that though there's these outside categories that God's putting himself under. We define those categories by God himself. Does that make sense? Okay, and existence is one of those things. Now, let me ask you this question. Do humans have a saity? No. Think about all the things we need. Not only do we not make ourselves exist and keep ourselves existing, by the way, the Bible says that Jesus holds all things together by his word of power, all right? Not only did he create everything, he keeps everything existing all the time. We need so many things. You recognize this when you go camping, okay? I I don't like camping. I'm gonna just put my cards out there. The reason I went to college and the reason I pay my taxes is so I don't have to sleep outside. And so I don't like camping. When you go camping, you realize not not only all the things you need just to survive, but all the things you need to have a somewhat decent life. You lay there and you're like, man, I need air conditioning. I need health insurance. And you just think of all the things that you need. We are very, very needy. God is not needy. Now, does the Bible give us some passages that speak to God's aseity? Yes, I think it does. Now, technically speaking, God's aseity is the fact that he is self-existent. But I do want to point to some passages that talk about how God doesn't need anything. We as humans need all kinds of stuff. God doesn't need anything. Let me read you some passages. Acts 17, 24 through 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Okay, we're not in God's house right now. Made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Psalm 50, 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Psalm 90, 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Notice that before anything else exists, the one thing that has always existed is God, his aseity. Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Okay? Isaiah 40, 13 through 17. Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God is not impressed by us. He is not impressed. Again, the difference between us and God is not one of quantity. It's not like we're a tiny bit strong and he's just way stronger. It's one of quality. He's a different type of being. All the nations to him are as nothing. Our nuclear arsenals, our, our struggles with North Korea, whatever it is, is nothing to God. It's like a drop in a bucket, okay? Daniel 4.35, this one's a tough one. I bet many of you have Daniel 4.35 crocheted up on a pillow at home, perhaps. It says this, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay? 
God does not need us for anything. He delights in us. He enjoys us. He likes giving us good things. He likes fellowshipping with us, but he does not need us for anything. Now, this seems kind of philosophical, so let's step down into pastor mode real quick, and let's talk about why this is good news. Let's talk about a few reasons why God's aseity is good news. Number one, it means you serve a God who's actually worthy of praise. You serve a God who doesn't need anything, but rather you need everything, okay? God is not like the gods of Greek mythology or the idols that you have to bring food to and these kind of things because maybe they get hungry or maybe you need to wash the idol or whatever it is, okay? God does not need anything from us, but we need everything, absolutely everything from him, okay? Now, here's a big one. Let me, give you, let me just give you a real practical one, okay? Everybody look at me. This is important. If God does not need us for anything, he does not need us for evangelism. Sometimes we think about that. We are called to evangelize. We should be fervent in this, but we do so with a heart of trust in God, not this fear that God's up in heaven wringing his hands wanting to save all these people and just can't seem to do it, okay? So we still evangelize. I would actually say we evangelize more because we know God is sovereign, but we don't do it as if God needs us, okay? It means that God doesn't need us to keep ourselves saved, to try to preserve ourselves. We really do have a tendency not to believe that God doesn't need us. We think that, yes, he does 95%, but he needs me for 5%. No, God does not serve by human hands as though he needed anything. Yes, we be faithful. Yes, we repent of sin. Yes, we walk in obedience. Yes, we evangelize. But we do those because God doesn't need stuff, not because he does, right? Not because he does. Everybody with me? Okay. Now, let's get into the next one. Do you see how this is a picture of God that is bigger than we typically think of? That's what I want. That's what we want today. In a few weeks, we'll talk about things that make God seem close. Right now, let's see his far-offness. Let's see his otherness right now, okay? Let's talk about immutability. There's a good term, immutability. What what does mutability and immutability mean? Anybody? This is kind of a weird term. I mean, it's in your notes, so just in case. My TV is mutable. Your TV is mutable because you change it. That's a good pun, okay? Uh, Yeah, something that's mutable is something that changes, Okay? It's something that changes. Let's name some things that are mutable. Go for it. Clothes. I don't mean just that you change clothes. We kind of use the word change in an equivocal way, all right? What I mean is that it undergoes change, right? So pretty much everything created, right? So frogs are mutable. They used to be tadpoles, and we're mutable. I mean, I've, I've, I'm different today than I was yesterday. I've gotten at least a day older, and I'm more anxious and weird, whatever. We change all the time. I wake up one day and I love God, and I wake up the next day and I'm super mad at God and feel like he hates me. We're very changing, we as humans. We're very mutable, all right? Things that are created are mutable. God, though, is unchanging. He is immutable, all right? He's unchanging, his unchangeableness. Here's a definition. God is unchanging in his being, his attributes, his purposes, and promises. His his being, his attributes, his purposes, and his promises. Now, let me tell you why this is super important that God is not changing, If God changed to become better than he is, what did that mean about God prior to that point? He wasn't that great. So if God changes, he could change to become better than he is, and that means for all eternity he actually hasn't been that great. He could have been better. Or if he changes for the worse, that's terrifying. What if he were just to change his mind and say, instead of being a good God, I think now I'm going to be an evil God. Just kidding. I lied to all you guys. You're all going to hell. That's terrifying. There's nothing more terrifying than an almighty evil being, all right? And so it's really important to us that God doesn't change. 
that he doesn't all of a sudden become a quadrinity instead of a trinity, that he doesn't all of a sudden cease to exist, that he doesn't all of a sudden take back his promises, that he doesn't all of a sudden do something like that, that God is unchanging. If he changed to be better, it means he wasn't the best to begin with. And if he changed to become worse, that's terrifying. Then it means he's still not the best. There's no change in God. He is immutable. He is unchanging. Let me give you a bunch of passages that talk about this. Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. Okay? James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift uh, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, that text is very clear. Not only is there no change just in God's purposes, there's no variation at all. There's no even a hint of shadow of change in God. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, children of Jacob, are not consumed. Meaning, if I did change, I would change my mind and I would take away my promises from you. God is also unchanging not only in his being, but according to his purposes. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man. There it is again. Just in case you were thinking of God as like this big dude, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Notice God does not change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Okay? Romans 11.29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay? One of the ways I know that if God has saved you, you will continue to be saved is because God is unchanging in his purposes. He doesn't put his kids back up for adoption. He doesn't re-impute our sin to us after he has forgiven us for our sin. You are secure in God's love for the very fact that God is immutable. All right, that God is immutable. Now, what does it mean then for God to change his mind? So I just read these passages where he says he's not a man and he doesn't change his mind. What about all those passages in the Bible where it says that God changes his mind? Right? So he's going to destroy something and someone's like, God, you better not do that because then what will the nation say of you? And he's like, you're right. You know what? I'm going to change my mind. Right? Or he regrets that he had made mankind. He's like, oh my gosh, I didn't foresee this coming. Humans are the worst. Let's just destroy them all. Right? What does it mean with all these passages of God changing his mind if God is immutable? Here's what I think is going on. Uh, let's do it this way. I'll give you a little chart here. When the Bible talks about God changing his mind, two things to keep in mind. Number one, it's describing God in human language, though he is not human, okay? It's what's called, we've mentioned this a few times, an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a mighty right hand and blood vessels and white blood cells. He doesn't have any hand. He's spirit, okay? He doesn't have to travel somewhere, though the Bible will talk about that, because he's everywhere. The Bible is using language that we can understand to try to grasp a being that we can't fully understand, okay? So what happens when it talks about God changing his mind, I think, is simply this. So I'll give you an example. There'll be like a king in the Old Testament, and the king is in sin. Or let's use Nineveh. Let's use Nineveh. I think that'd be an easier example. Everybody know the story of Jonah and Nineveh, the whale slash big fish? In Hebrew, it's the same idea. So if I say whale, don't get mad at me, all right? So let's say Nineveh is over here. I'm just going to put an N, because trying to spell Nineveh is just, I don't spell. I just don't use words, okay? So Nineveh is over here in sin. The unchanging God says go tell Nineveh that I'm going to destroy them. Go tell Nineveh that I'm going to destroy them, okay? That's true. Assuming that Nineveh doesn't do anything different and assuming that Nineveh doesn't repent, God is going to destroy them. 
when they repent, they, they're the ones that change. So when Nineveh repents, God hasn't changed. God has said, if you stay the way you are, I'm going to destroy you. And what has happened is Nineveh has moved over here and has repented, and so God doesn't destroy them. Notice then in this example, God is not changing. God is not saying, I'm going to destroy you. Just kidding. I didn't know you were going to repent. Now I'm not. He's saying, my unchanging nature is always such that when people repent, I forgive them, and when they remain in sin, I judge them. That's, God's, that's the standard for God always. God in his unchanging nature says, anytime someone's in sin, I'll judge them. Anytime they repent, I forgive them. So what happens is Nineveh is the one that moved. They go from being under God's wrath, they repent, and they move over to this different silo. They move over to this different section. They're now under repentance. So notice that God hasn't changed his mind. The person has repented. God's mind is this, that when people are in sin, I judge them, and when they repent, I forgive them. So when the person moves from this category to this category, God hasn't changed. The person has switched silos that they are under. Does that make sense? It's not just the same with Nineveh. It's the same anytime there's like that. So God will go tell a prophet, hey, go tell this king he's got 15 years to, or he's, he's going to die. The king repents, and God grants him 15 more years to live. Well, God has not changed. The person repented, and so God's response to that is different. But God in his nature is unchanging. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Okay. I know these are lofty concepts today, Okay. Let me give you another few examples of what it means to, uh, for God to be unchanging. Let me give you a quote from a very, very popular systematic theologian. His name's Herman Bovink. He says this, there is change around, about, and outside of him, and there is change in people's relations to him, but there is not change in God himself. St. Augustine uses an example of the sun warming the earth. As the sun warms the earth, the sun just keeps being the sun. The sun is just being the sun all the time, just doing a great job being the sun. It's the earth that's changing. The earth is experiencing that warmth, and it is heating up. We change. God doesn't change. Okay? Does that make sense? You ever heard the saying, uh, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay? The whole point there is the source of light there produces different effects in people. They change, but it's just being light. That's how God is. God is unchanging. He's immutable. We change. We move. We relate to him differently. When we repent of sin and become believers, we now have a new relationship with him, but he hasn't changed. He's remained the same as he always is, which is, if you repent, I'll forgive you. If you repent, I'll forgive you. Let me give you a few reasons why this is good news. Number one, it means you can trust his promises. I think, so here's what's so crazy. We, everybody in here, I think, if I asked you, do you believe the Bible is truly God's word and everything it says, you would say yes. But think about practically how many promises we just don't believe. We don't really just believe that he's head over heels in love with us. We really just don't believe that he's going to preserve us in our salvation. We really just don't believe that uh, we can't make him love us less by doing bad, and we can't make him love us more by doing good. We just don't believe it. We know that it's true, but it's hard for us to trust him. Why? Because we think of God as a big human who might change his mind. Because every other human around us, we've been hurt. There have been people that said, I will not hurt you, and then they hurt you. God is not like that, okay? God is not like, God will not betray you. God will not betray you. It means you don't have to worry about him becoming less gracious than he is. The way he feels about you right now is the way he feels about you forever moving forward, okay? He loves you. He sees you as perfect in Christ. Now, everybody good so far? This is a lot. Do we need to take a big breath? I do a weird big breath thing every now and again. I do this with Judah too, but it's typically because he starts crying and gets scared when we do theology. I'm kidding. We don't do theology like that. We do theology. We say God made the clouds, but we don't do, uh, you know, God's aseity. I'm like, son, what is God's aseity? 
He's like, fire truck. You know, it's not, it's a different, it's a different level. So, okay, we talked about God's aseity. What does that mean? Someone give me a definition. Be proud, even if you're wrong. Be proud in your answer. Self-existence. Yeah, he doesn't need anything to exist. He just exists. He's not just A being, he's capital B being, all right? What does it mean to say that God is immutable? That he's unchanging. That he's unchanging. When it talks about him changing his mind, what we see if we look at that biblically is there are many passages that say God doesn't change his mind or he doesn't feel regret or these kind of things. And what we see is that actually what happens is we have moved, we have changed, God has affected us in a certain way, but God himself is always the same, okay? Now, before we get, I gave you a bunch of biblical passages for those, okay? The next two things we're going to get into, I don't have very many biblical passages, but that doesn't mean they're less true. Let's back up. Let's talk. Let's do a little theology together. Okay, this is kind of a soapbox issue for me. So if I yell, it's because I love you, not because I'm angry. Now, the implication of something is equally binding biblically as the direct command itself. Everybody get that? Let me say that again. If the Bible says something, we must follow that. But if the Bible implies something by what it says, that thing is equally binding on us. Let me give you a few examples. Let's say that uh, back when I was single, let's say I went on a date, and a girl said to me, we're going to break up, Zach, because you're ugly. Okay? That's pretty explicit. That's pretty explicit. So what what does she think about my looks if she says, Zach, you're ugly? She thinks I'm ugly. Everybody with me so far? Okay, now, let's say we're sitting down for dinner, and she says, Zach, I think we should break up because you're not really my type. And I say, what's your type? And she says, handsome. (laughs) What has she called me? Ugly. She didn't say it explicitly, but it was logically implied by what she did say. Everybody with me on that? So I can't walk out of there thinking, man, she probably thinks I look great. No. Implicitly, she said that I'm ugly. When the Bible says things, it doesn't just make one statement. It actually makes a statement that affects us in several different areas of life, and those things are equally true as the statement itself. Let me give you some more examples. Does the Bible say, don't go shoot an innocent person with a gun? Does it it say that explicitly? Is there a verse that says, in the future there'll be something called a gun, and thou shalt not shoot an innocent person with it? No? So do I need, so if I say you shouldn't go shoot an innocent person with a gun, do you need to say to me, well, Zach, do you have a Bible verse for that? Yes, I have a bunch of them, but not explicitly. I have a verse that says not to murder. Everybody with me? So is it true, though, that I shouldn't go shoot an innocent person with a gun, even though the Bible doesn't say that explicitly, because it's implied by the fact that the Bible commands me not to murder? Everybody with me? Let me give you another one. Does the Bible say do not look at internet pornography with those exact words? No. Is looking at internet pornography sinful? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus says that if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So you have to realize we're already doing this all the time. When the Bible gives us a command, it's not just giving us a command, it's giving us kind of an umbrella that a bunch of things fit under. Everybody with me on this? I'll give you another example. Let's say the Bible said that there were a thousand people who died in some battle. Do I need a verse that says that means that at least 900 people also died in that battle? Or is that implied by the fact that a thousand people died? It's implied by the fact that a thousand people died, okay? Do I need a verse that says in the Bible, don't go up and punch a stranger in the neck? Explicitly. No, I need other verses about loving your neighbor and these kind of things, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you can't always just say, can you give me a Bible verse for that? Explicitly. You have to ask, does the Bible still teach that by one of the things that it implies? 
Does the Bible still teach that by one of the things that it implies? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Keep that in mind for these next two attributes because this is really, really important. Again, Bavink says, as the word of God, not only its exact words, but also the inferences legitimately drawn from it have binding authority, have binding authority. You have to hold this or else none of the Bible applies to you. It just applies to churches 2,000 years ago. You have to hold this idea of implication. The Bible will say things explicitly, but it also implies certain things. Everybody got this? Okay. So don't get mad at me as I give you this definition of God and you say, I need a Bible verse for that. I'm going to give you some, but I don't need an explicit verse. I need the implicit idea in other biblical verses. Okay. With that in mind, let's talk about God's simplicity. Let's talk about God's simplicity. Sometimes it's called the unity of God. Okay. This doesn't mean that God is like uh, dumb or uneducated. We have, a, we have a tendency to think of simple as something that's bad. A real complex machine, that seems really good, but something that's really simple, that just kind of seems elementary. That's not what we mean by that. Here's what we mean by that. Here's the definition. Because all of God's nature is equally deity, God is not divided into parts, okay? God is not divided into parts. Here's simply what we're trying to say. God is simply made up of one substance. Whatever God is, all of him is. What is he made up of? Godness. I don't know, all right? He's just God. The whole point is uh, a car will be made up of several parts. You have wheels and you have a gas tank and you have spark plugs. That's about all I know about cars, all right? It's kind of a man skill that I lack. Every time I go into the, uh, the shop, unless I go to a good mechanic like Brian, the other guys will rip me off because they know I don't know anything about cars. They're like, yeah, your flux capacitor's broken. I'm like, oh, no, how much is that? And they're like, $30,000. Okay, take it, take it. It's made up of parts. God is not made up of parts. God is one simple being. He's one simple substance. Okay, so let me, let me tell you some ways that we should not think about God. We should not think of God as something like this. We have a tendency, I think, when it comes to God's attributes to think of something like this. Like a pie chart, okay? So 10%, this is like God's wrath, right? So that's God's wrath. God's love, I mean, people love, look, love is like this. People love in the jaw heart. People love the idea of God's love. His jealousy, you know, might be here. Jealousy. Uh, justice, whatever. And we have a tendency when we talk about God's different attributes to act like he's just a collection of a bunch of things. That is not the way to think about God. Here's the way to think about God, conceptually. He's not a circle, but conceptually. God, he's just God, okay? He has one substance. He is just God, and God's stuff, God happens to be loving and wrathful and just, and merciful, and kind, and all of his attributes, okay? All of his attributes. God is one simple being, one simple substance. He's not divided into parts, so whatever he is, he has all of his attributes to the highest degree all the time, all right? All of his attributes to the highest degree all the time. It's not so much that God is love. Uh, It's that God is God, and Godness happens to be fully loving. Let me tell you another way we should not think of God. We shouldn't think of God as just a collection of his attributes. So here's God, and we just tack on these other attributes. So here's some love up here. Uh, here's some uh, wrath over here. Here's some uh, mercy over here. Does that make sense what I'm saying? God is just God, and he happens to be all those things. God's stuff happens to be, that's a terrible term. Please don't use the term God stuff. I'm just trying to use language to communicate. So here's a better way maybe to think about it. Let me say it another way. Let's pretend that this circle represents God. Let's use some different colors here. 
Let's say red represents his love. Okay? Red represents God's love. Okay? Let's say blue represents God's justice. Okay? His whole being is just. It's not that his justice is different than his love. They're the same thing. And then let's say this represents his wrath. Okay? And let's say this represents his glory. Okay? Now, again, God is not some sort of, uh, it looks like a Fabergé egg or something like this. The idea is that God is one simple substance, and his being happens to be loving and kind and merciful and gracious. You don't want to cut God up into parts. Okay? He's not like us. He's not like us. This is really important because we have a tendency to think of some of God's attributes as more than others. Everybody in here will err on one of these two sides. You either have a tendency to deny God's love at the expense of his wrath, or you have a tendency to uh, deny his wrath at the expense of his love. Every one of us errs on one of those sides. It's because we're not thinking of God as simple. We're thinking of him as like us, composed of parts. I have hands and fingers and fingernails and eyes and a bunch of different parts. God is just God. He's just God. This is also why we don't say that by God is good, I don't mean there's some other standard out there called goodness that God fits under. God is the standard of good. He is goodness itself, okay? He is goodness itself. Now, I'm gonna give you some verses, but by the way, I think that you hold this already. If you're saying, well, I don't really understand what you're saying, here's simply what I'm saying. Let me give you some verses, actually. 1 John 1, 5, when it says that God is light, does that mean that part of him is light or that all of him is light? All of him, right? All of him is goodness. Light and darkness in this context doesn't mean like photons or whatever. It means that he's goodness. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. Is just part of God love or is all of God love? Which one? Those are your only two options. Okay, all of him is love. That's all we're saying. So if this sounds kind of philosophical and abstract, it's not meant to be. It's simply to say when the Bible says something about God, it's true of his whole being because he's one simple substance. All of him is light, and all of him is love, and all of him is wrath, and all of him is mercy. You actually see his attributes listed together. Let me give you a great example in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It's not that you're meant to cut out these attributes and say, well, 10% of God is love, and 4% of God is forgiving iniquity. No, all of the, God is all of these things. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means leave the guilty, uh, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on, uh, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When God is described in this passage, all these different things are said about him at once. He's loving, he's steadfast, he forgives iniquity, he punishes what's evil. You're not meant to say 10% of God punishes evil, 4% of God. You're meant to say God himself is all these things. God himself is all these things. Jeff will get into this fact a little bit more next week, uh, but the fact that God is everywhere, Jeff will talk about God's omnipresence. One of the things that implies, though, is that God is simple, okay? So think of God for a second the way I've told you not to think of him as a big man. If his hand is in one place over in China, then his other hand has to be someplace else. It doesn't work. God can't be everywhere if he's not a simple substance, if, he's not, if he doesn't have simplicity. You'd have to cut him up. His eye would be one place in the universe and his other eye would be somewhere else in the universe. That doesn't make any sense. God is everywhere with his whole being, okay? Because he is simple. Okay, everybody with me? Do you see God is different than you? That's the only goal today is that that would produce worship. That when you start wrestling and you start doing what I do, there are certain times where I think that I know better than God. 
because I'm thinking of God as like this really just big smart person instead of realizing we're not on the same level. God's not just smarter than me. He's infinitely smarter than me, which is way more than just smarter than me, okay? All right, now, let's get into the one that is the most controversial and the one that people misunderstand the most, but I've already tricked you in one sense, okay? If you hold that God is immutable, which we've seen is biblical, and if you hold that God is simple, which we've seen is biblical, you must hold the next one. Logically, you have to now hold this next one, that God is impassable, that God is impassable. Bear with me on this one. This is going to sound like I'm some sort of crazy heretic, but I'm not. I'm actually teaching the position that is the majority position in church history, okay? So almost everybody in church history holds what I'm about to tell you right now. So let me explain the definition and then tell you what I do and don't mean. The idea of impassibility is this. Though God really is his attributes, love, wrath, etc., God does not have emotions or feelings, and God himself does not suffer. We're not saying Jesus and his humanity or something doesn't suffer. We're saying, and God does not suffer. Now, let me tell you why this is difficult for, a lot, for us to comprehend and understand. Am I saying that God doesn't really love you? Yes or no? No. How do we know that God loves us? The Bible says he loves us, okay? I'm not saying God doesn't really hate sin. The Bible says he really hates sin, okay? I'm not saying, we're not denying anything the Bible says. What we're asking is, is the way that God loves you the same way that you love stuff? No. So I'm not denying that God loves you. We have to start with that biblically. Before we come to this principle, we have to say the Bible says God loves us, so that's undeniable, okay? Now we're just trying to figure out what exactly that does mean, okay? So what I'm saying is, God really does love you. So during this talk, if you feel like God doesn't, you've misunderstood me. God really does hate sin. He really does have justice. He really is all of his attributes. But that doesn't mean that he thinks about things the same way you think about them, okay? Here's what we have a tendency. Let me give you a little, uh, let me give you a little scenario. We talked about how God doesn't have a body, right? That he, the Bible says he's spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as Jesus will say, okay? So God doesn't have like a physical body. So let's say I came up and I said, God doesn't have a physical body. And then you said, but Zach, look at all these passages that talk about his mighty right arm and him traveling and him walking and doing all these kind of things. I would say, it doesn't matter how many verses you send me. We've already established biblically that God doesn't have a physical body. We have to reinterpret those to understand this concept that we've already taught. If you then say, well, Zach, if God doesn't have a physical arm, how could he move anything? I would then say, maybe he moves things differently than you do. Maybe he moves things differently than you do. That's what I want to talk about now with the idea of God's impassibility. I'm not saying he doesn't really love you. I'm not saying he isn't really wrathful. What I'm saying is the way that he expresses love and the way that he expresses wrath is not the same as the way we humans do, okay? Let me give you a few examples. I've put a bunch of points here. This actually, we have a blog on this on our website just because this is a difficult topic. Um, And so uh, I've just copied some of these points from there. But let me just mention a few things about God's impassibility. Let's pretend you have the sun shining right here. Okay, so here's the sunshine. All right, no eclipse, which apparently we got, but I couldn't see it because it'll blind you if you look up at it, though I kept trying. And here's Zach right here, staring up at the eclipse sun. Apparently I'm kicking out a little karate thing. Here we go. Okay, I'm right here. Now, I feel warmth. Why? Because I have a physical body. God doesn't have a physical body. So I have a physical body, so I feel the warmth of the sun. So I would say something like, it feels hot, correct? Does the sun feel its heat? Okay, it does not, correct? Now follow me. 
does that then mean, though, that the sun is not hot? No, it does not. Just because the sun doesn't feel its own heat, it is the sun. It is its heat, okay? I feel it. The sun is it. That's the way love and wrath and the attributes work for God. God is not just a big human that is more emotional than us. That's what we think of. We think of we're humans, we're emotional. So God must be like a big human, which means he just might have more emotions. He'd be the most squishy, the most emotional being in the universe. And what you're doing is you're again making God in your image. Again, the difference between us and God is not one of quantity, it's of quality. The sun represents, let's say, God and his love. We feel love. What is love? When we, we feel it with our physical bodies, like we get these, this churning, these butterflies, we, we have this internal passion or whatever love is. God is love. That doesn't make him less loving. It actually makes him more loving because his love doesn't change, though your feelings do. Let me give you another one. God is all of his attributes at the same time. So let me give you an example. If you are super mad, someone cuts you off in traffic and, I don't know, flashes a gun or something like that, you're super angry, are you at that moment also the happiest you've ever been? Yes or no? No, right? Because, again, we're not simple. We're divided into parts. And so there are times we're more loving, times we're more wrathful, times we're more happy, times we're more sad. It doesn't work that way with God, okay? It's not as though God was like 50% mad that day. So a bunch of Christians sinned. God was already like 50% mad. And then you do something bad, and he's like, that's it. Now I'm at 80% mad today and only 20% happy. It doesn't work that way. God is 100% happy all the time. He is 100% wrathful all the time. He is 100% just all the time. He is all his attributes to the highest degree all the time. So it makes no sense to describe God the same way we describe our feelings, okay? To describe God the same way we describe our feelings. We are not happy and sad to the highest degree at the same time. God is not 60%. He's 100% all of his attributes all of the time, okay? Number three, Biblical descriptions of God are often anthropomorphic. We talked about this. The Bible has no other way to describe God to humans other than using human language, and so it will describe God in certain ways that when you look at other biblical passages, you see it can't literally be that way because it contradicts another biblical passage. The idea of impassibility, I can't turn to a passage. I actually can show you a passage here in a second, but I can't turn to very many passages where it says, and thou shalt think of God as this philosophical concept is impassable. Again, it's implied by the fact that God is all of his attributes, by the fact that we don't affect God, by the fact that uh, God is not a human, he doesn't have body parts, etc. Let me give you some examples. 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So you could send that to me and you could say, see, Zach, your idea of impassibility is dumb because this text just said that God feels regret. Regret is this thing that you feel when you wish you would have done something differently. The problem is, if you look down a few verses later, it says in 1 Samuel 15, 29, and also the God of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, this is a really strong passage. The Bible just said, think of God this way, but don't literally think that that's true of him because he's not a man, okay? That's not true of just regret. That's true of all of God's attributes. Or consider James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay? When I'm tempted, there's something inside of me that wells up and I'm desirous of something. That's how temptation works. Okay? God doesn't have an inside and an outside. There's not something that wells up in him uh, or something because he can't be tempted. He doesn't feel like that. Okay? 
Number four, God does not have a physical body with which to feel. Do you know why they're called feelings? This is not profound. Do you know why they're called feelings? Because you feel them. Guess how you feel them? With your body. When I'm driving in traffic and someone cuts me off, anger wells up within me. I feel like my blood pressure rise and these kind of things. If Jeff embarrasses me in a staff meeting, I blush. My face turns red, okay? When you're first dating somebody, you have butterflies in your stomach. Well, God doesn't have a face that turns red or a stomach for butterflies or any of these kind of things. So again, when we're talking about God and love, he is loving. He is love itself. He is the definition of love. He really does love you. But that doesn't mean he feels love as an emotion like we humans do in our bodies because we're affected and changeable, okay? Affected and changeable. Number six, God acts, but he's not acted upon, okay? Uh, God has already ordained everything he's going to do. We are not making him literally change his mind. We've already looked at that. We're not making him change his essence. He acts, but he's not acted upon. That doesn't mean he doesn't hate our sin. He does hate our sin. It does mean he's not surprised by our sin because he has ordained everything that's going on, though we are still responsible for our sin. Number seven, love we have a tendency to think of as an emotion. Is love an emotion? What do we tell our kids when they're dating? What, what, what is love? Somebody give me a good definition of love. Don't say it's a verb. Uh, this isn't like time for a... Uh, uh, some sort of uh, squishy thing. So what is love? Is love an emotion? Is love an action? Is love a state of being? What is love? Somebody give me, give me some thoughts. Man, it sounds like you had that one in the chamber. That was a great definition. All right? So fulfilling the needs, and what was the other one? Fulfilling the needs of someone else regardless of how they treat you. You say it again louder just so everybody can hear. Fulfilling the needs of someone else regardless of what they say or do to you. That's a great definition of love. See, even in this whole conversation, we have a tendency to think, well, if God's impassable, then he can't really love me. Why are we defining love as an emotion? I mean, the one thing we're telling our kids is, no, don't define it as an emotion, right? Because then, if that's the case, you will fall out of love with your spouse. But maybe love is more than that. Maybe it's a commitment. Maybe it's setting yourself to do good for that person regardless of what they do. That's love. The Bible will even describe it that way. When the Bible talks about me loving my wife, that doesn't mean there won't be days where I don't have squishy emotional feelings. The idea is do good to her, pursue her, have her feel loved, right? In Romans 13, when it talks about that the government bears the sword to execute wrath, does that mean that the entity known as the government is super angry, like as an emotion? No, wrath there is an action to do bad to somebody because they've committed some crime, okay? Now, lastly, lest you're freaking out, let me give you some encouragement. Jesus also has a human nature, and so therefore he can sympathize with you. He does feel pain. He does know what it's like, okay? Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Okay, so I'm not saying that Jesus, because he also has a human nature, can't sympathize with you in these kind of things. Here's what's really, really interesting about Jesus. There is a sense in which he already knew what it was like to be a human because he's God and he knows everything. But in his ministry, as a human, he gains experiential knowledge of what it's like to be a human. Isn't that interesting? Let me give you an example. This is the example Grudem uses. I think it's really helpful. He says, imagine uh, a doctor who's a guy who's an OBGYN and he delivers babies. He knows everything there is to know about delivering babies. 
Now imagine that there is a female who's an OBGYN and she actually has a baby. She already knew everything about having the baby, but now there's this special kind of experience that she has. What's interesting is Jesus has always known everything about humanity because he's God, but in his ministry, as he takes on the second nature, he's one person with two distinct natures, fully God and fully man, is that now he's able to have this experiential knowledge because he actually lived as a man. So it's fascinating, which means when you're feeling down, when you're feeling frustrated, when you're feeling hurt, and you look up to the clouds and you say, you have no idea how I feel, Jesus can say, I know exactly how you feel. You, what does it feel like to be betrayed? Were you betrayed? I was betrayed. Are you sad? I was sad. I was a man of sorrows. Uh, did you have people make fun of you and revile you? I had people make fun of me and revile me. Did you feel forsaken? I felt forsaken in the Garden of Gethsemane. He can say, I know how you feel. Okay? So we're not saying that Jesus in his humanity or something like that is not able to sympathize. What we're saying is that God is love. He doesn't feel love. He is wrath. He doesn't feel wrath. Those are different. Now, let me tell you why this is good news. I know this one sounds weird and abstract. When I first heard about this doctrine, I thought, that's super stupid. The Bible says all the time that God burns with hot anger or that he loves or whatever it is. I just thought this doctrine was totally wrong. I just thought, this must be some sort of philosophy thing that somehow snuck into Christianity, and it must somehow be bad. And I just couldn't get past, though, the fact that almost everybody in church history has held to it. I thought, clearly, they read the Bible where it says God burns with hot wrath, And then they have to say, well, clearly this doctrine of impassibility can't be right. And then I started studying them and seeing why they said that. And I realized the whole reason that I was getting tripped up is because I was still thinking of God as a big human. If God is a big human and he doesn't have emotion, then he is weird and robotic and something not worthy of worship. But again, he's not. Again, it's not that when I'm at love, I'm at 4% and God is just at 100%. God is love. His being is different than mine. You see how easy it is to make God in your image instead of being made in his. And then this is what hit me. I was talking to Katie about this. I was like, man, I'm wrestling with this idea of impassibility. These guys hold it. Here's what they say. I don't know what they'll do with this passage in the Bible. And I was wrestling with it. And she said, just something that's so wise, because she's just very wise. She said, that's the best news in the world because it means that God's love for you is always the same and you cannot change it. Your only other option is that we serve a God that you can give good days and bad days to. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you gave God a worse day today and that tomorrow you can give him a better day by your actions? Is God now served by human hands as though he needs this to be happy? No. This is the greatest news in the world because it means that God has just, like the sun, shined his love on you and you can't mess it up. You can't mess it up. You can't do more to get more of that love shining on you. You can't do less to get less of that love shining on you. He loves you. So if you need to take anything from this, take this. God really does love you. He really does have mercy towards you. He really is just. He really does have wrath towards sin, all those things. It just doesn't mean the same thing for God as it does for us. For God, it's part of his nature. For us, it's just something we feel for a fleeting second in our tangible bodies, okay? That's all I'm trying to say.